What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. Podcast listeners, ladies and gents, thank you so much again for tuning into this episode of the podcast. I'm hanging out with Dr. Dan Rafai, who is a surgeon based in Atlanta. He is a spine surgeon. He is a professor. He is a man who holds like 30-something patents in the medical space, who's just a phenomenal, phenomenal inventor, doctor, and an even better guy. I've really had a chance. I've really had an enjoyable chance to get to know him. Um, shout outs to his sister, Nilly, who made the introduction for us to be on this podcast together, which is so much fun. But one of the cool things about Dan is that his impact is not just, hey, how can I treat a patient today? But it's how can I leave an impacting? How can I leave an impact in the world greater than just me, you know, me as a surgeon today? How can I invent things? How can I create things? How can I solve problems? They're going to be something that can leave a legacy of healing. They can be a legacy of, of treating patients and just making a world a better place. So I had an absolute blast. Dr. Dan, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast, and I hope all the listeners enjoy it just like I did. Dr. Dan Rafai, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. I'm excited to uh, chalk it up. I think we got a lot of things, a lot of exciting stuff to talk about, but thank you so much for being here. Matt, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be on your show with you, and thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. I got to give a little bit of love real quick to your sister who made the intro here, who has just been a fabulous person for me to meet and made tons of introductions. And I'm glad uh, she made the introduction here. So she's uh, good old Nilly is, is not afraid to network her way into situations. So thank you to her too. Absolutely. 
So if you're willing, I, I know we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. You're doing some amazing work in the medical space and have a quite, quite an awesome career path. But would you just be willing to share a little bit of your story and you know what's led up to today? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great question. Um, I kind of knew that I was going to go into medicine probably by the age of 10. And uh, I remember walking to a bookstore uh, with my parents and going into, I think it was like the reference section of all things. I mean, who imagined a 10-year-old walking to the reference section? But I went to the reference section. I bought this book. I actually still have it. Um, uh, and my daughter and I were talking about it today. It's called The Human Body. And it was about probably 100 and something pages, Matt, on just kind of medical anatomy and talking about the different systems. And I remember reading this book at the age of 10. And then at that moment, I knew I wanted to go into medicine. And so throughout high school, I volunteered. Uh, I volunteered every Saturday from the age of 16 in an emergency room in my local community. And I was the first uh, st you know, student or uh, individual under the age of 18 to do that. I actually took a lot of uh, uh, special requests and permission. So for about two and a half years, I volunteered in the emergency room on every Saturday uh, and was able to interact with different physicians, ER physicians. From there, I was able to meet other physicians. One of the, the people that really took me underneath the wing was a gentleman named, a uh, physician named Dr. Chris Fagan, who really made a huge effort because he knew my interest in medicine and introduced me to many different physicians. So in the summers, when I was out of school, Matt, I would spend the entire summer one week at a time working with different physicians. I'd spend a week with a cardiologist, a week with a neurosurgeon, a week with a cardiac surgeon, and so on and so on and so on. So my parents were very supportive. I, you know, they, you know, I had gotten my driver's license. They, they, they kindly provided me with a car, and I would leave the house at seven o'clock or or, or six forty-five, get to the hospital, change the scrubs, and then follow and shadow these doctors uh, in their offices. Uh, in the operating room. And the community in the hospital was so easy back then. I think now a lot of rules and regulations have changed. Uh, but back then, it was really simple to have an, uh, a student shadow you, especially one that wasn't even in medical school. So I did that for probably about two and a half years and then continued my studies in, in high school. And then ultimately, when I graduated high school, I actually got an award uh, uh, from the um, the governor of California at the time, this was, this was 1993, for the, the sheer volume of hours that I had done volunteering in the emergency room. And then from there, I went to undergrad, uh, again, focused on the sciences. I majored in chemistry and French. I studied abroad for a period of time and then uh, applied to medical school. Um, and I remember getting into medical school. Uh, it was probably the most uh, elating event of my life. It's one of those moments that you can still feel the phone call uh, I had a phone call actually back then. I got a phone call that said that I got in, and and it literally changed everything. It was a February uh, in Boston, and I got that phone call. My entire life changed, and so I was so excited. And then uh, I was fortunate to go to the University of Chicago, Pritzker School of Medicine, which was probably for me one of the best places to go. Um, fantastic educators, unbelievable history, and. Um, a huge focus on um, academics. And in fact, their mantra was, we are the, 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 the teachers of the uh, physicians. And that's kind of, I think, been a huge part of my life. And from there, I did my residency in neurosurgery at WashU in St. Louis, another fantastic 
uh, opportunity with amazing mentorship and preceptorship and an incredible opportunity uh, to learn with a long, rich history. The first chairman of neurosurgery in the United States was actually at WashU, uh, Dr. Ernest Sachs, so a long history. And then I did a fellowship in spine surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, another uh, incredible uh, institution of higher learning, and then uh, took some time off um, you know, during my medical training to do some research at the Howard Hughes. And then ultimately, I've been at Emory now uh, as faculty for 10 years. And I just found out earlier this week, Matt, after you and I had talked, that I just got my full promotion to full professor in neurosurgery and orthopedics. So uh, a lot of good things have happened. So I'm very blessed and fortunate. Well, uh, uh, first off, congratulations for the recent promotion. That's exciting and good news. So congrats on that. That's amazing. Thank you. Uh, so I, I, there, there's a lot of questions I have. I got to go back to the, you, uh, I think you said you were 10 years old when you first picked up the human body book. What was it that really, I guess, piqued the curiosity as you were reading that? Was it the way specifically the human body, like the, the, physical human body? Was it the idea of all the parts and components and, uh, you know, obviously amazing inter intertwinings of the human body? Was it the complexity of it? I mean, was, can you point to something that really sort of piqued the curiosity? Yeah, it's interesting, Matt. I remember this day as it was yesterday. I walked into uh, um, Walden Books. Walden Books doesn't even exist anymore. And uh, I remember walking to this bookstore and I remember going to the aisle, finding this book. And it was, I think it was the perfect book. It was not too long, written for, you know, someone that could read at the age of 10, lots of pictures. Um, at the same time, it was fascinating because for me, what really piqued my interest was I just didn't understand how the human body worked. And they had it grouped and organized into systems. So they had the blood system, they had the lymphatic system, they had the neurological system, the cardiovascular system. So I was able just to take this book and just read it and learn about how the body worked. Because ultimately for me, one of the things that I always knew from even younger than the age of 10, I was interested in the sciences. I was always interested in um just the way our body worked, the way we were able to move, the way we were able to breathe, the way our heart, our heartbeat was. And this find, this book was a moment that cemented that education and that, that uh, you know, yearning for, um, to, to kind of fulfill my educational need and just gave me this kind of jump start on the process of becoming a physician. So you, I think you mentioned that you were, uh, you were g given an award from the state of California for the sheer number of volunteer hours. So clearly this was, uh, I, I come from a medical background, so I know obviously, or parents, you know, family of medical backgrounds. So obviously there's certainly a nice compensa compensation side of things that comes along, you know, with a successful practice or successful surgery or stuff like that. But clearly just, just the sheer number of volunteer hours proved that you weren't doing this for the money. There, there was a deeper drive to all that you were doing doing and learning and, 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 and just, you know, soaking in from all these different, uh, you know, doctors you were volunteering with and hospitals and stuff like that. I, I got to believe that's true. I mean, Matt, the financial aspect never even crossed my mind. I was way too young to even understand that concept of it. Um, so no, I, by no means, I did this for a sheer love of it. And I'll tell you, even today, I love what I do. I, I'm so passionate about what I do. I can do it in the morning. I can do it in the night. I can do it in the middle of the night. And I'm still happy about it. And I think that's what I think most people go into the health professions um, would say. They this is not a this is not a job. It's a vocation. 
And for me, that's what it was. Um, I, I honestly, I don't even, I couldn't even, you know, I grew up in a small community that was not very affluent. And so by no means were the physicians, uh, you know, um, very wealthy. And so you really didn't see that aspect of it. You, you went into this because you were interested. In fact, when I applied for the position to be a volunteer man, because I was 14 or six, I think I, I was around around 16. So I was 15, 16 when I started, but 15 ish when I requested the opportunity, it was actually Palmdale regional hospital. And they wanted me to be a candy striper. And I said, that's not what I want to do. I, you know, it sounds awesome. That's, that's great, but I don't want to give out newspapers and walk around and give magazines. I was like, I really want to be seeing patients. I want to be in, in, in interacting with physicians and nurses and, and I want to learn. And they, you know, they have to think about it. It's like, really, that's kind of an odd request. Um, remember, this is, this is probably, gosh, I'm 45 now. This is like 30 years ago almost, right? And so they had to think about it, deliberate about it. And finally, they said, okay, you know, sure, let's try it. So they, like I said, they gave me three hours on 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Saturdays. I did this every Saturday, Matt. So imagine a 16-year-old just, just dedicating their Saturdays to do this. But I did it because I wanted to do it. I actually created the opportunity. So uh, by no means at all was finances involved. This was pure interest and self-motivation. And I kind of created the opportunity because I think the folks that were in that position realized that I genuinely had an interest in this. Yeah, that's so special. And that's, I mean, obviously that's sort of the driving point for the driving point for the show. And one thing that I just love learning from people is what is that, what is that thing that you don't mind dedicating tons and tons and tons of hours to the thing that you're thinking about when you wake up or go to bed or you don't mind, you know, it doesn't take effort to get involved with their love. So I, I absolutely love the passion for that. So which transitions my, 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 uh, my question is, was there a defining moment where you really felt like you became a doctor and that could have been before, could have been before you actually got the, the, the legal title of it or after, but was there a moment that you said, man, yep, I'm a doctor. Uh, well, I mean, I guess, <laughs> I think probably when I got into medical school, I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. But the day I graduated medical school, um, and then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm actually a physician, um, was that moment where I said, hey, I'm going to be a doctor. Um, I was talking to my daughter about this and, you know, she was talking about something about, you know, doing something, but being afraid. And I can't remember what it was. And I said, you know, when you're a, a physician or a doctor and all of a sudden you're done, you know, and then the next thing you're doing surgery, you're afraid. You're afraid because you've never done it before. You don't know what you're doing. And that was another moment, I think, that I kind of felt like, oh, my gosh, I'm a doctor. And, and I remember back when I finished medical school. So it was like, you know, I finished medical school. I graduated. Um, you know, at that point, I, you know, I drive from Chicago down to St. Louis you know, move into my new house with my fiance, who's now my spouse. And then um, like that Monday, the following Monday, all of a sudden I'm now a doctor and I'm required to take care of patients. And so that was another moment, Matt, that I would say that I had one of those, oh my gosh, but oh my gosh moments, but in a, but in a more of a halt, uh, uh, heightened uh, fearful state where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm actually responsible. I need to know how to take care of patients. And I need to now really start learning how to do surgery and how to be more independent. I don't, you know, of course I have supervision, but those were some interesting moments. So I think throughout someone's career, especially in medicine, there are many 
milestones in many moments. And those moments are um, marked by points of elation as well as points of fear. And at the same time, once you overcome that fear, then there is significant satisfaction and more learning about yourself and what your capabilities are. So uh, whatever you're comfortable sharing in this, walk me through the outside world that will never get to experience this. The first day, and this kind of relates to your, your, your previous answer, the first day that you do surgery and you're the one operating what is the what is that feeling that experience the 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 you know the the fear the excitement all the above what is that like and again obviously whatever you feel comfortable sharing that the outside world will never get to experience except for for those who go through it so I can kind of you know obviously I remember my first surgery but you know fortunately I was involved with an appendectomy removal of someone's appendix and I was involved with the attending or the the faculty person and that person was wonderful. That person made a huge effort to educate me, to teach me. Um, he knew I was completely nervous. He knew I didn't know how to tie knots. He knew that I had never cut any tissue. And he just kind of walked me through it, but obviously did the vast majority of the surgery and did the critical portions. But even though he, he let me do the non-essential components, it was this amazing feeling. But I'll tell you that on the flip side, and this is the moment that I probably remember the most, Matt, Within the same year, which is your internship, I got called down to do a procedure, uh, a vascular procedure, Matt, and um, and it was a leg amputation. And I so I show up in the room because you know it's my job. I run down there, I get my scrubs, and I'm you know I'm all ready to go. I'm in the room and I'm just waiting, tick tock, tick tock. I'm waiting for my faculty member, and the patient's already put the sleep and all the instrumentations out, and they're like, "Okay, doctor, are you going to start?" I'm looking to see who they're talking to. Uh, and I look at them and I said, what are you talking about? I'm the intern. I don't know how to do this. And they said, well, you're hit. You're the only person here. And I said, uh-uh, no way. I've never amputated a leg. I don't know how to do this. I have no idea. And that's when I had a moment of severe panic. And I said, what am I going to do? I'm not going to do something I don't feel comfortable with. So I had them page my chief resident. I said, hey, I need your help. Uh, you need to come down and help me. And the chief resident was fantastic. And is actually still a good friend of mine came down and um, I assisted him and, and learned a lot. But I think, you know, back in the day when I trained, it was, you know, this weird mantra of see one, do one, teach one. Obviously that doesn't work. I think that today as an educator, as someone that teaches residents and fellows and teaches domestically and internationally, on new spine techniques, you really have to create a, 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 a situation where people feel comfortable, where they've done, you know, computer simulation, didactics, cadaveric training, and then had, uh, you know, supervised cases. But back, like I said, when I was training, Matt, it was a little bit different. And um, I think that, you know, fortunately, I was well grounded. And I recognized that this was a bit above my head. And, and I said, you know, I need help. And I'm going to take a five minute pause before I do anything and get the right person in the room and then do this correctly. That's, uh, I mean, the humility there to say, hey, look, uh, for as much as it uh, feels good to be the quote unquote doctor in the room, I need help. That's uh, probably a great thing that you went and, and, you know, got somebody else to help with that, you know, obviously for the surgery side, but also the learning side as well, too. So that's that's a cool story. The um, 
on the you know academia side, so I, I think as we've talked, I come from a family with a, a lot of people in the, in the medical background, and I've got a grandpa who is a general surgeon, my dad who is an oral maxillofacial surgeon, and my cousin uh, who's currently doing a lot of trauma surgery as well too. And I've I've noticed that like when when we're our families together, they'll be you know talking about a surgery and how that's being operated on today from my cousin's perspective my grandpa will reference you know how they did it back then or if there's still similar similarities between what they're doing so for you in the teaching environment how like often are there major changes to the way you might do a, a spinal surgery and obviously we can we could talk for days and days and days about specifics but you know in the tech world things are by the time you post an article it's probably out of date you know how fast are things evolving in the medical world as far as procedure goes and and just the way that you're you're teaching different treatments i mean i think that's a really good question and obviously there's evolution and there's improvement in technological advances in medicine, like in technology, because medicine is very tech heavy. So if you're interested in technology, you would love medicine. In fact, certain fields of medicine are extremely technically um, you know, uh, involved. And I think that within spine surgery, the reason why I went to spine surgery when I was training as a resident was it was probably at the time, and still is, one of the most uh, – tech involved fields where there's constant evolution. I mean, put it this way, 30 years ago, we were barely putting screws in people's spines. I mean, these cases existed, but now it's standard of care. And so for certain types of procedures. So there's this been a huge evolution in the understanding of metallurgy, the kind of metals and the properties, the understanding of biomechanics, the understanding of you know, reconstructive uh, spine surgery. And, you know, my wife said, Dennis, and I know you said your father was a, uh, an oral maxillofacial surgeon. They, their training is so much better equipped for understanding the biomechanics of teeth, the metals involved and the metal properties. And I think that medicine, you learn this throughout residency, especially towards the end of residency when you pick out your field, but there's a lot of medical advances that have changed what we do. And what we do is still based upon the stuff that your grandfather did. And there's probably some instruments that we use that are very similar and maybe the positioning is similar, but what we've been able to do is build on that. And by building on it, we're able to do things safer, more reliable with more uh, reproducible outcomes. So whereas say, for instance, in the tech world, my cousin's a big tech startup person. His motto is, you know, fail fast forward, get out there, do it. It doesn't have to be the best the first time. You know, that's what's the same. That's what disruptive technology is. It doesn't have to be so good the first time, but just get out there and and get the technology going. Not the case in medicine, right? You don't want us having a high complication, right? Right. So the reality is we take the basis of what we know that has been done over, you know, hundreds of years to millennia and we built on it. Of course, the technology is critical. But if you look at brain surgery, when I was interviewing as a medical student, I had interviewed at Harvard and the chairman there said something that was probably still, you know, resonates with me today, which was that you're in the, you're entering the golden age of neurosurgery. So this, that's a pretty bold statement to make about 20 years ago, but he was absolutely right. The amount of computer learning, the amount of imaging, um, new metallurgy, all these things have come together in the last 20 years of my career within training and being a faculty member, the things that we can do now were 
where you know you wouldn't have even thought of these issues. They're using laser ablation to treat tumors, to reduce seizures. Disorders that were historically not treated with surgery are now being treated surgically, like Parkinson's, um, you know, eating disorders, uh, mood disorders with uh, brain simulation. So that the understanding of the basic human anatomy, which goes back to that book that I picked up when I was 10 years old, understanding how the human body works and the amazing environment in the tech world, not within medicine, but within computers, within engineering, and within just other technological uh, advancements. All those things have come in now, and now they're coming into medicine. And because we understand the chemistry and where certain anatomies are, we're able to do better imaging. All of a sudden, we're able to access parts of the brain and the spinal cord that we couldn't do. And now all of a sudden, we have a whole new way to treat a disorder. Um, you know, movement disorders and, and neurostimulation, it, it, it's a game changer. I mean, I remember being a resident, Mac, and we had a patient with uh, an essential tremor. So effectively, they have a tremor, and their tremor was so bad, they couldn't hold a cup. And they couldn't brush their teeth. And at the time, they were, you know, and, you know, the, the new technology back then was using uh, uh, neuros, uh, you know, uh, brain simulation technique, which is now standard of care. And I remember doing the surgery with my faculty member. The patient's awake, Matt. And, you know, we, it's a very long kind of cumbersome process. You get all the imaging, you put them in a head frame, but the patient's awake and you're talking to them. You drape them in a way so they can still talk to you. And then, you know, we, we put the simulator into the brain, uh, stare tactically, and then effectively we turn the simulator on before we actually implant it to make sure we're at the right place. And this is a thalamic problem. The thalamus is deep in the brain and we're simulating the thalamus. And as we're talking to this patient, you know, we're turning the simulator on and off, but we're holding them, we're having them hold a cup. So in the off state, the cup is in their hand and it's shaking. I mean, literally it's about to spill. It's obviously an empty styrofoam cup, but it, it would basically be spilling. Okay. We turn it on, the hand stops completely steady. That is amazing. And that's the kind of stuff that I think the uh, chairman at Harvard was saying when he said the golden age of neurosurgery has come. That is something that 30 years ago, you know, 25 years ago, even 20 years ago was just, a, a, you know, a dream state. Now this is happening all over the world on a regular basis. And I think the patient impact, the improvement, the quality of life uh, speaks for itself. On uh, on that note uh, of just sort of the innovative process and the and the progression of everything happening, uh, rumor has it you have a couple patents in the in the in the medical space. So I'd love to hear uh, <laughs> a little bit about sort of your perspective on that, some different ideas that you've had and taken to market. So I'd love just for you to dive in a little bit on that. Yeah. So I again, being at WashU was a very creative uh, atmosphere that was very uh, you know you had good mentorships. And so early on in my career, I started thinking about how we can improve certain technologies, procedures, implants. And I've, in my, and I had this dream of creating, you know, a, a tool instrument implant in every part of the spine anatomy and, you know, slow and steadily 10 years, 15 years moving, actually probably now 20 years moving forward. I've been able to, to slowly do this. I probably have a little bit over I think like 33 to 34 patents uh, issued. Uh, you know, the reason I say it's like 33 or 34, it just depends because I, I probably get a patent issued every few months on average. 
for a lot of the work that I had started many, many years ago. It takes a while for the patent office to get to them. But I have devices that I've developed for um, for replacement of fractured vertebral bodies, for screws, for cages with inside of disc spaces. And what I the reason why I got involved in the innovative aspect of it was that, you know, you can help a patient directly by physically being present, which is the best thing that we do as physicians. But there's also this idea where I can be helping patients when I'm not present or I would have never met the patient. Like, in other words, when I innovate and I create a product that provides a benefit to a patient and another physician uses that implant across the world at a different time zone, in a different location, on a patient that I'll never meet, in my mind, I'm still helping that patient and I'm still advancing, you know, the healthcare objectives that I sought out to do when I first went into medicine. So I'm still innovating. I work with a lot of different companies uh, to produce new products, to innovate. And now I teach a lot of those products. Um, and in the current era, I'm doing a lot of this teaching uh, remotely uh, through Zoom technology, but it's been fun. It's It's really been a way to give back, to teach not only surgeons, but also people that uh, work for the companies that are representatives that need to know about the implants and products. Um, and I think that the innovation side of it is probably the aspect of neurosurgery that I like probably the most, because I feel that's the highest impact to my patients. And I think the other thing I've noticed is that patients are so appreciative to know that you're at the forefront, that you're actually developing the technology, and that you're actually, you know, teaching, you're developing, you're uh, you're, you're actually publishing it on your research and you, you're actually the content expert on that specific area. That on, on, on that note, that kind of transitions perfectly into the, the next question I wanted to ask was, uh, you've obviously been on the surgery side, but also on the academia teaching side as well, too. What would be sort of the highs that you get out of both that, you know, what, I guess, what would be your favorite parts, pieces to the actual practicing and, you know, the, the, getting in there in the surgery side of things versus the teaching side of things. And you've touched on a couple points a little bit, but I'd love for you just to elaborate a little deeper on it. Yeah. I love to operate. I mean, surgery for me is probably the most fun activity. I mean, like I think that, you know, if you look at the environment where I'm most at ease, most at calm is during surgery. Um, you know, even if a surgery is challenging, even if a surgery is difficult, even if there's, if there's moments of, of uncertainty during surgery, I am super at calm and almost in a Zen state because I really enjoy what I'm doing. And I think that with that in mind, to be able to work with other people that are learning, that want to be at that, at that point in their careers and are trying to learn new techniques is fascinating. So for me, there was never a doubt about it in my mind that I would go into academics. I, I've been in academics since um, I started uh, you know, uh, my career at Emory. I teach residents, I teach fellows, and it's been extremely rewarding to be surrounded by people that want to learn, that are interested, that are self-motivated, that are constantly trying to improve. Because I think it's the same traits that I espouse, that I see in others. And I think the ability to teach is what enables us as professionals in healthcare to advance the field, right? I could not have done what I have done today without having supportive and nurturing preceptors then in my mind, then, then why would I not do the same? And that's kind of what I've done. And I think that uh, 
you know, I'm the co-director of the, of the Spine Fellowship. I'm very involved with the residents, We're constantly doing research projects. And I've been blessed that, you know, throughout my time in um, medical school, in residency, and, and even as a, a faculty, that I've, that I've actually done very well with teaching awards and uh, recognition for the services to, to educating others. I love that. I love that. So that, you know, perfect transition to my favorite question uh, on the planet is ultimately, you know, throughout the course of all this and, you know, outside of obviously your career as well, too. What is it that that gets you out of the gets you out of bed in the morning the most? What is it that sort of drives who you are and, you know, the impact that you want to leave on people? I think that's an interesting question. I, I would say that the ability to help others move technology forward. And I'm speaking loosely now, right? So help others move technology forward, making a meaningful impact on the lives of others and being a, a role model uh, for my children are probably the things that get me up. Whether I do that through education, whether I do that through leadership, through the different societies and committees that I'm on, or whether I do that through the practice of medicine. But I would say it's those qualities that I do. And I think that um, one of the benefits of, of being in technology and innovations, I get to meet a lot of people outside of medicine that have the same passion for what they do. And uh, even, you know, irrespective of their fields. And it's that commonality that I think binds us and holds us together that I find most interesting. I love that. Um, is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? I just want to say, obviously, a huge thank you for being a guest on the show. But is there anything else, um, I guess, and we'll obviously include, you know, some of your, uh, you know, links to some of your materials and the awards as well, too, and, and maybe some social handles as well. But, um, you know, is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think that in order to become successful, that you have to go through periods of uncertainty, periods of self-doubt periods of, you know, financial difficulty, like the costs of educating yourself, failures in your um, endeavors. But what keeps you or what makes you successful in the long run is the perseverance, the self-motivation, and the unbelievable belief in yourself that you can do this. And I think that's what I would tell people is that no one got to where they, to, to where they are at without having, you know, trials and tribulations. It's what gets you across the, the finish line that makes you successful. That is so good. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being a guest. This has been fantastic and excited for the audience to listen in. So thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Enjoy talking to you.